This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 14 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I am John. And today we are joined by Adam. How's it going, Adam? Good, thanks. Glad to be here. Oh, thank welcome. you for, for joining us. Yeah. So, Adam, uh, you've, you've done some stuff like working on uh, the Red Shirt Diaries and whatnot, right? Yeah, I did props for season two of Red Shirt Diaries, which is an awesome TOS web series, which just wrapped up. So if you're interested in that, go to theredshirtdiaries.com or YouTube slash Jawin. It is awesome. Yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty good. It's pretty funny, you know, as, as far as uh, um, fan films go. You know, I like the satirical takes on, on Star Trek. It's always good, you know people it, it it gets overlooked sometimes but you know it's pretty awesome yeah and there's a lot of great little canon nods and references so if you uh are listening to our trek fm and you watch that you're going to get a lot out of it so i encourage you to go over there and check it out for sure for sure so today we are going to be talking about uh jj abrams's production of mission impossible ghost protocol directed by brad bird before we get started, as is customary whenever we have a new guest on the show, Adam, what's your relationship with Star Trek? I take uh, it you're a fan. I, I am a definitely a huge fan, but I am relatively late to the party. I only started getting really into Trek in late 2011, and uh, that was kind of when... The streaming really took off on Netflix. I mm. uh, Before I was a Trek nerd, I was a huge film nerd, cinematography nerd. I went to uh, NYU Film School, and while I was there, I was just sort of overdosing uh, my uh, tourist complex, watching every Fincher movie, watching every Godard movie, et cetera, et cetera, so that you know, when I started working, I didn't really have the mental or physical bandwidth to down these uh, – intense art films so i i was still uh, looking for something and then i saw on netflix oh there's 700 hours of star trek i guess i could uh, get into that but uh it's weird the <laughs> one episode that sort of made it really click with me isn't really a generally a well-regarded one i'd say it's like an okay episode it's identity crisis from tng where jordy is sort of becoming an alien and um the scene oh i remember, remember that. that one it's yeah. great um yeah the scene that really I was like, oh, I get this, was when he's in the holodeck and he recreates the situation based on their footage that they took at the site. And he's like, well, change the lighting, change this, change that. I'm like, oh, I get this. I can, I'm into it. So that was sort of it. And then, you know, since then, I've just it's I've watched every episode several times. I'm a huge, you know, STLV nerd. So I love that and um, love Trek FM. This is the best. Yeah, at, at the the last STLV, you know, I, I heard someone say, "Hey, Mike," 
And I turned around, and there you were. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so weird that someone who I've never met would recognize me. And, you know, because before that, you were like, uh, we should get together and talk about aspect ratios. And I was like, yeah, we should totally do that. And then, you know, we saw each other, and, you know, we were like, we should get together. And we said, yeah, we should totally do that. And then STLV being what it is, you know, that never happened because everyone is just running around like chickens with their heads cut off for five days or whatever it is. And I, and I always regretted that. So this year. Oh, I, yeah. I take it like, likewise. Absolutely. Now, that's okay. classic STLV for you. But uh, <laughs> I recognized you from the White Sox jersey. I'm like, if there's anyone wearing a White Sox jersey at this freaking con, <laughs> it's, it's got to be Mike Schindler. So, uh, no, but I, I absolutely love this show in particular. I'm glad this is the first one on Trek FM that I've had a chance to do because I just sort of gravitated to it immediately being the like I said, the film and cinematography nerd I am. So I just heard this. I'm like, oh, this dude's talking about anamorphic lenses and projecting <laughs> film. Like this is dead center of uh, my Venn diagrams of interest. And uh, I just love the fact, like, just I was just scrolling through the all the commentary Trek stars backlog before this. And I'm like, I just love that there's an episode about Jerry Taylor's writing on Quincy Emmy. And I can just <laughs> listen to that. Like, Oh, really? yes. That was a delightful delightful tour through the past everything about quincy is delightful and uh, i just love all those like (laughs) weird little detours that you guys get into i think it's brilliant i'm super stoked to be talking about a little ghost protocol today yeah well we appreciate that for sure i'm glad you know it, it makes me happy to hear that someone you know because obviously there's you know you're talking about kind of a niche market when you're talking about uh Quincy ME episodes on the Star Trek pod- <laughs> podcast or you know I mean the one that I always think of is I forget the name of it but the the um the the Nicholas Meyer novel about the Oh 7% series. solution? Oh no no that's that's no, mainstream. It's not, oh it's not time no 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 it's not time after time. No 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 no, uh, no no you guys are thinking way too to middle of the road. No there's a one that we did I forget the name of it now but it's um it's a book about it's basically like Indiana Jones goes into like the Amazon jungle to take down this guy who has like an empire built around like rubber trees or something <laughs> I, it's something really that crazy obscure crazy but there's an episode on it so uh yeah check that out love McMire. he's so yeah. great <laughs> he, he is the best he really is the best um but yeah so okay so so you're you're coming at this more from a, a film angle which is definitely cool because i think that's kind of true for um, me too and and i, I know John, you know, you're you're very much sort of broad. You're definitely not narrowed down to just Star Trek by any stretch that, of the imagination. I would like to think not. <laughs> so, so that's that's very cool. Um, so, what are your thoughts on J.J. Um, Abrams? Since this is the J.J. Abrams mm. uh, production series, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I think he's an immaculate craftsman. Just every aspect of production cinematography lighting editing production design costume edit you know i just said editing but uh just immaculate on all you know levels and i think that uh he i don't think i've seen a movie that's really knocked me on my feet from him but i always leave feeling that wow i got my money's worth this guy knows how to construct and produce and 
exhibit a film. Cool, cool. Agreed. Here at least. I don't know. I don't know about John. Yeah, but no. Yeah. Well, I think it's been pretty clear. I think the guy's a good. Uh, he's. I agree with you, Adam. He, he's a good showman. I. I'm not going to put him in my my Fincher tier, but no. he's. No, no, no. You know, he he's sort of a. Uh, he's got a, a little bit of. Um, and I mean this in a good way, sort of like P.T. Barnum about him. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Of, you know, he Just knows that, how's, he no, knows how to get you in there. Yeah, that initial Cloverfield trailer. Where it just is one eighteen oh eight. I was like, okay, what is this? Let me watch this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was pretty great. So yeah, so today we are going to be talking about Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, which was produced by J.J. Abrams along with his bad robot partner Brian Burke, uh, but not directed by J.J. Even though he had directed Mission Impossible Three. And uh, we've talked a lot about Mission Impossible in various forms on this show. We talked about the original series uh, because of Leonard Nimoy, and we talked about uh, Mission Impossible 3 because of J.J. as as a director. I don't think we haven't talked about Mission Impossible 2 yet, have we? I know I've always wanted to. Thankfully, no. Hey, okay. Brock and never talked about Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know? And and I, so I've always wanted to do an episode on that, but we haven't gotten around to it yet. But, Darn. yeah, no, I mean, from the very, very beginning, Mission Impossible and Star Trek have been sort of intrinsically linked. You know, those were the two shows that Desilu decided to produce in, in an attempt to break away from the sitcom mold. And they're the two shows which, uh, you know, started simultaneously. And one of them was slightly more successful than the other, but both of them were big and groundbreaking. And, um, uh, bankrupted Desilu and <laughs> <laughs> became Paramount Properties, and they've been tied together ever since. So this movie came out in December of 2011, which would have been about two years after Star Trek 09 and about a year before, a few months before Into Darkness, right? So this was right around yeah. the time that, that you were getting into Star Trek, right, Adam? That's right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it was directed by Brad Bird. It was written by, oh, my God, I, the names. Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec. Thank you. Thank you. Who uh, were television writers primarily. They had worked on Alias with J.J., and they were also um, uh, the guys who created uh the American version of life on Mars, right? Yeah. So, um, so they, it makes sense that, that he would, he would grab some, some writers from his stable to, to come on here, especially, you know, alias writers, since that worked so well the first time around with mission impossible three. And yeah, it was kind of an interesting choice to, to keep JJ on as a producer for this movie, since historically speaking, the Mission Impossible movies have always sort of been about bringing in new blood. I mean, I guess Robert Town did write the first two movies, but directing-wise, it was always an, another person. And Mission Impossible 3, for whatever reason, really clicked, and they wanted to keep J.J. and Bad Robot on, even if it wasn't in a directorial capacity. Um, but yeah, they got Brad Bird to direct it. This is his first live-action movie. And... Yeah, it's pretty much it. Now, so, I but the but the thing is, I think it's worth mentioning that 
Mission Impossible 3 wasn't as successful as they had hoped, but they still kept Abrams on uh, onto the project. Didn't it, didn't it not make as much money as it, it was like originally projected to? Like it, it fell a little short, didn't it? I I think it did. I think um, people were really happy with the work that J.J. did on it, but this was also at the time when Tom Cruise was right. going through his sort of... Uh, media whatever you know where he was jumping on oprah's couch meltdown and stuff like that the word that. you're looking for is meltdown <laughs> i mean i guess that is a word you know i mean i i, I always <laughs> thought it was crazy how people would be like that tom cruise he's so weird i don't want to go see his movies or yeah like well. my take has always been like who cares if he's jumping on a couch look at him you know jump off that building like for real you know i mean that's the yeah. only thing i'm worried about Tom Cruise jumping off of, you know? So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I was always, I, I, I mean, he's an amazing actor. You look at him in things like Jerry Maguire and Magnolia and stuff like that. And it's like, Last God. Samurai. Yeah, like Jerry Maguire and Magnolia and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, oh. God, Last Samurai. I'm going to, you know, let's just keep moving. You're going to hell. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, Tom Cruise, who cares? But, the studio seemed to not agree with me because this movie uh, supposedly was designed in such a way that Tom Cruise could kind of take a back seat for future productions. Uh, in the end, this movie did so well that you know the studio was like, "You can make ten more Mission Impossible movies," <laughs> um, and uh, you know the rest is kind of history. You know with another movie which has been released since then and another one on the way already. But at the time, there were some doubts about Tom Cruise's box office uh, um, durability. So, John, would you want to give us kind of a synopsis of this thing? Yeah, sure. Um, After a uh, a, a very thrilling um, assassination of uh, a cast member from Lost... Uh, Tom Cruise is broken out of a uh, Russian prison, and uh, a lot of bad stuff happens that uh, leads to the Kremlin exploding and Ghost Protocol being put into effect, where the Impossible Missions Force is completely disavowed, but they have to go to ground and stop a Russian extremist from causing World War III, because he believes that World War III would be a good thing. Yes. Yes, it seems like in these movies they always need to go underground, or they always need to, yeah. you know, be disavowed and stuff. And just right, once, yeah. <laughs> just once, I'd like to see them actually like perform their mission without any speculation as to whether or not they are a bad guy. I always thought that about. Um... That was my joke before Cabin in the Woods came out. Like, you know, what if they just went to the cabin and just had a great weekend? They just come back and just, <laughs> that's it. Complete reversal of expectations. Cabin in the Woods. There you go. There you go. That's, that's, that should be what Cabin in the Woods 2 is about. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Adam, what did you think about Ghost Protocol? I have, I did not love it at first. I have a kind of a funny story about how I first saw this movie. It was... I broke a self-imposed rule about not going to the first showing on opening night. The The time I had done that previous to this was 
for the Dark Knight in 2008, and uh, it was in suburban New Jersey, and it was such a madhouse. I'm like, no, never again, never again. And then <laughs> flash forward three years later, and my buddies uh, Dan Mecca and Jordan Raup, who run a phenomenal website called The Film Stage, which uh, you guys need to follow on social media if you don't. The Film Stage is, is fantastic. Um, they're like, dude, we go to call. That was what they were calling it. Hashtag go to call. We got to see go to call opening night. We got the tickets. You got to come with, dude. I'm like, oh, I don't know. And they're like, because they wanted to go in Lincoln Square, which, if you guys don't know, is on 60th and Broadway in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, it's the big IMAX theater in New York. And I'm like, oh, I just, I can't. And they're like, no, dude, it's 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 seven o'clock. They're, that was when that started happening, where they do seven o'clock and nine o'clock screenings the night before, and like we got perfect seats. So I go. And before that, I remember very distinctly everyone just buzzing, not so much necessarily about the movie, but this was the first time anyone had seen any footage of The Dark Knight Rises, the IMAX footage. And everyone was buzzing about that, and the whole thing was like, what is this guy saying? No, you could nobody could understand Bane. The mix was so crazy, but um, I thought it was cool. I kind of wish they kept it more muffled in the final picture. But anyway, uh, every, at the movie, you know, it saw it in IMAX opening night, and they were loving it. Hashtag go to call, go to call, go to call. And I was just like, oh man, I don't know. Uh, the, I had just the two movies that had come out just prior to this that I was just head over heels for. Uh, within weeks were um, David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Tinker Tailor Soldier's Spy. So I was like, oh, those these are my movies. And then I saw this and I was just like, it did not like click with me. And then mm. I just recently watched it again this last week for the first time in four years, five years. And, and what did you think about it uh, now? I liked it more. I, you know, I still have two big problems with it, which I guess we'll get into a little bit later on, but I appreciate it for what it's worth. Again, you know, like I mentioned earlier about J.J. Abrams, the, the craftsmanship on display here is just immaculate, and I think that's, you know, become a hallmark of the Bad Robot brand, which I think you guys are starting to uncover in this series about his role as a producer, and um, uh, I, I did enjoy it. I think that Brad Bird brought a certain kind of verve to uh, the proceedings for his first feature, and I was thinking about this. Another thing I thought was kind of interesting is this movie came out just a few months before John Carter, the, the Andrew Stanton's directorial live-action directorial debut. Oh, wow. And this was both of their sort of live-action coming-out parties. And as, as we all well know, John Carter did not do well. And he sort of went back to Pixar and is now doing the sequel to his big hit, Finding Nemo. And this Ghost Protocol did so well that it afforded Brad Bird the opportunity to make a big-budget Disney flop uh, by the name of Tomorrowland, which he has now gone back to Pixar and is making the sequel to The Incredibles. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting little cosmic coincidence there, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I never really thought about that. But, yeah, that's definitely true. Well, what about you, John? What were your thoughts on the movie? Uh, I, I, too, went to see it uh, on opening weekend at the the real IMAX theater that's that's in this area that I always go to. Uh, and I went, I actually had no real interest in seeing it because I just wanted to see the Dark Knight Rises uh, prologue because I was, I was totally jacked about that. Um, and then after that was done, um, I remember everybody applauding at the end of it. And then uh, Ghost Protocol queued up and we were like, eh, we're here anyway. And so we stayed. And I, like... The first time I saw it, I really dug it until the ending 
when I started to get a little bored, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I was just fatigued. Like it, it, it's always been one of those things where it's like, you know, was I just up late and cranky that night or something like that? But by the time it got to like the fight in the the car garage at the end, I was like, eh, okay, uh, I'm done. But what I always enjoyed about it was that they knew how to use the IMAX camera uh, to great effect. And when they, you know, when they're on the Burj Dubai and the, you know, it's the IMAX camera shots, it was just, it was totally vertigo inducing. But I was sort of, you know, it was good, but not great. But then rewatching it for this, I actually had a much better reaction uh, to it. And I actually really liked it um, after seeing it this time. Uh, There's still one part that I think is sort of an editing slip um, and or studio decision that I thought might have been crammed in there that I don't care for still. But um, overall, like, yeah, like uh, I'd want to see I'm. Since we're going to be seeing it next anyway, it's sort of a moot point. But seeing Ghost Protocol again, I'm like, oh, no, now I really do want to see Rogue Nation. Like, I'm excited to see another Mission Impossible movie now. Well, I'm glad that you guys finally uh, caught up with the rest of us <laughs> in your in your love for this movie or whatever, admiration for it, um, at least. I was... I've always been a huge fan of the Mission Impossible movies from the very first one, you know, and it's always been sort of this thing where I don't know, the first one, it was like the first big blockbuster to come out when I was first starting to like really get into movies. The second one was the first big blockbuster that I projected as a projectionist. And then, you know, it just kind of like continued in that in that vein all the way up to this one, which is actually the last, not not only the last big blockbuster blockbuster that i projected as a projectionist but literally the last movie that i showed on 35 millimeter film so uh yeah r.i.p 35 millimeter but um so i was really looking forward to this and you know having loved all three of the other ones to varying degrees and the third one in particular i was super excited about uh ghost protocol and when that trailer came out i was just like wow, this thing looks amazing. I really cannot wait for this movie. And sticking the Dark Knight Rises thing on the front of that, that was just, you know, like the cherry on the top for me. And, you know, I had, you know, Adam, you talked about how you had to be dragged to the first show uh, at at, uh, Lincoln Square. That's that's what it is, right? Lincoln Square? Yeah, it's across from Lincoln Center, which always kind of trips me up. But yeah, the Lincoln Square IMAX in uh, Manhattan. Yeah, you certainly hear people talk about that theater all the time. And I, I went to the only real IMAX theater in, in Chicago, Navy Pier, um, which is where they would watch dailies for The Dark Knight when they were shooting that. Um, but uh, oh, cool. And, and I, I got perfect seats and everything. I went with my dad and a couple of my friends, and you know, I, I, I could not wait to see this movie. And it did not disappoint at all. I I don't think that it's as good as Mission Impossible 3, but I, I think it's pretty fantastic. And watching it uh, since then, it really has grown in terms of my uh, esteem for it as well, uh, even though I, I liked it a whole bunch when I first saw it. I mean, watching it again last night, I, it, it kind of blew me away all over again. Um, and I, I really love how even though it is like a a JJ production, because that was sort of like one of the things which I always 
liked about these movies is that each one's by a different filmmaker. Each one is its own style and all this stuff. And even though this one is still produced by J.J. Abrams, it it maintains its uniqueness, you know, with Brad Bird's style, which is unique to J.J.'s, you know. And I thought that was really cool. And I, I love it. I really, really do love it. So, Adam, you were saying that there were a couple of uh, points that you wanted to bring up about this uh, this here motion picture. Uh, what, what what were you going to say? Yeah, you know, for, just first off, I probably should have said this at the top of the show. In, in the interest of full disclosure, I do work at Paramount Pictures, but I have nothing to do with this movie or any of the Mission Impossibles. Uh, but I will say I think it is pretty cool that I'm on a Star Trek podcast talking about Mission Impossible. So my Paramount brand is pretty on point. <laughs> Hashtag Paramount Brand. No, you know, rewatching this, my admiration did kind of go up for it in the sense that I think it's kind of interesting how it's basically just these huge set pieces with this little interstitial sort of connective fiber stringing it all together. My two big issues with it, though, are one, the villain. I think coming off MI3, where Philip Seymour Hoffman is so electric and just so intense. This villain was just not cutting the mustard for me, just very blank. And I kind of understand that in light of what you were saying earlier about how it was trying to be positioned as, you know, this new team being built. And I kind of had the same problem with the Avengers where, you know, Loki's cool and all, but I was just not buying the villain angle. And um, that was kind of uh, a sticking point for me and the other thing that I kind of struggled with is the structure in the sense that you have this Burj Khalifa set piece which is staggering and just so amazingly orchestrated it's like the better part of a half hour and it happens I want to say maybe just shy of two-thirds the way through the movie and it's amazing it's huge and there's like these little mini set pieces within it and you know after that there's sort of nowhere to go but downhill they kind of peaked early and i kind of agree with you john that by the time they got to the the climactic car park fight i was just kind of like over it and um i think i had the same problem with pacific rim where you have this unbelievable massive hong kong battle that lasts 20 30 minutes and then you know your climax is this underwater battle it's like this wasn't as good as what i just saw so i i kind of had that problem with the movie where it just sort of peaked too early Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, like the the first viewing, I was underwhelmed by the 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 car park. I think that this time for me, it worked better because it it didn't switch the IMAX format because I was watching it on uh, just sort of like a, a just a regular straight up screen. I think it actually worked better for me because it is a you know. A mano a mano, you know, uh, fight. You know, just just one guy to one guy. I think that, as I recall, that whole car park thing was in IMAX, or at least key shots of it were. And I think that for me was overwhelming. It it actually plays better for me in in a smaller format because it's a personal fight at the end. For me, the thing that specifically sticks out and doesn't work and. I think this also speaks to the idea of trying to build the new team is there is this scene where Jeremy Renner gives his backstory as to how he's connected to Tom Cruise. 
And even this time, the movie has this great flow. Things are going. It's good. Jeremy Renner, like, obviously isn't just an analyst. And Tom Cruise stalks out. He's like, I tell you my secret when you tell me yours. And, like, walks off. And it's like, oh, nice tension. Everything's great. And then they they have this, you know, all of a sudden they have this scene where Tom Cruise isn't even there. But, you know, he's talking to Paula Patton and, and, and Simon Pegg. And he's got the whiskey bottle out. And he's talking about this tragic thing about, you know, and how he's connected to Tom Cruise. And it just pacing wise feels so out of place and it feels like such a wedged in scene to give Renner that resonant moment with the audience like this is the guy you all are gonna love because this is how he's connected to it and for me I really think I don't know if it was something where it could just have just have happened at a different part if they had just waited till the end like I honestly believe if you excise that scene in whole and you just add a few more lines to their wrap-up conversation at the end, I think that that part of it just works better. Now, it's a nitpicky thing. Overall, like I said, I, I like the movie more this time, but that's really just that one part that still jumps out at me. Yeah, I guess I didn't never really had a problem with that because um, even though maybe on, on, on uh, further viewings, I... I it doesn't work for me as well as it initially did. But to me, one of the big things which I was kind of concerned with when I was first watching this movie was how they kind of negate everything that happened in Mission Impossible 3 by mm. ditching um, the uh, his his wife, uh, played by Michelle... Michelle... Monahan? Monahan, yes, yes. Uh, Michelle Monahan. <laughs> who uh you know was awesome in, in Mission Impossible 3 and everything and you know as i was watching this thing i was like really really that that but that the whole ah oh, you guys you're killing me you know that was <laughs> that was the one part of this movie which really really bothered me so when they got to that scene which was very much sort of about what happened to Michelle Monaghan's character, I was just kind of like sitting there, like watching it like a hawk, you know, like, okay, and trying to fit all the pieces together to see how much I should hate this particular storyline in the movie. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so so that that didn't really bother me. I don't know. And and I do think even though the, the car park scene doesn't um, hold up to the to the scene at the hotel. I, I think it is still pretty awesome. And that's something which I am rather critical about with a lot of action movies where, you know, the big set piece, which is sort of like mind-blowing, comes in the middle of the movie, and then when you get to the climax, you just don't care. And that's not something that I felt with this movie at all. I, I was really um, sort of uh, um, engrossed in the whole party scene. I thought that that was really done in a very fun way. And then when that leads into the last action beat, I think that it's so amazingly choreographed that, um, I can forgive it being smaller than, uh, than, than the set piece. It, it is a really well choreographed fight. It really is. And I, th I think that the reason uh, again, that I, I was able to appreciate it on the smaller format is I was able to see that, like, it wasn't sensory overload. But you mentioned the party. What's funny about the party is what I noticed this time is, uh, as everybody knows, Tom Cruise is not the tallest gentleman working in Hollywood. 
And there's one shot in specific where he and Paula Patton start walking away from the camera and the illusion of them being the same height works and it works. And then they start walking on this arc and it almost looks like he's taken like two steps down and like he's doing that stair. He's starting to do that stairs trick and it cuts right right as you start to notice it. But it, it was something that I, I don't know. If I'm imagining it, but it just it looked like they had the, the camera set up perfectly to, to maintain the illusion. And then they started moving and they went in, a, in an arc and you could see him sort of shrinking next to her. And it was like and then it cut. I was like, that's not an accident. That's so funny. You know, it's interesting that you brought Paula Patton up because I wanted to mention this. I like her and I think she's pretty good. I don't think she was that good in this, though. I kind of didn't really feel her vibing with the rest of the team that much. In terms of the female roles, I was way more into what uh, Leah Sadu, if I'm pronouncing her name right, was doing. I think she's a really, really good actress. Mm. And she just, real quickly, she did a couple other movies, which I think are just phenomenal. Uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, which uh, won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Festival in 2013, I think. And that's just an amazing film that I, I was watching her. I was like, oh, right, she was in that. And... Uh, Last year, she did a movie called Saint Laurent, uh, which was phenomenal, about Yves Saint Laurent. Very sort of experimental biopic style. Uh, phenomenal French director named Bertrand Bonello. So I just wanted to plug those two movies real quick, because when I saw her in this, I completely forgot she was in this after having seen her in those films. And I was like, wow, she's really got a, a presence to her. I liked her quite a bit. But uh, Paul Patton, not so much, but I do, I do like her as well. Well, well uh, here, here's a question, just since we're, we're talking about both of them. I, I like Paula Patton fine. I, I thought she did a, a good, admirable job in this. I believed her as a very physical uh, character. Um, the fight scene between the two of them, like, they, they really, I'm just, like, it's difficult to phrase this, but a lot of times fight choreographers overcompensate for the fact that it's two women fighting and they, they sort of force the fight to have a less than natural flow hmm. for me in this, I feel that the fight choreography between the two female characters when they're fighting was spot on. It was just as good as any of the male uh, fight choreography that's been there. And I know that this, this seems like a weird nitpick, but it does seem to me that fight choreography in Hollywood is still kind of playing catch up in not trying to force the issue um, and and either hold back or make too showy, um, you know, close combat fight scenes uh, with, with women. And I, I think the Ghost Protocol, they really get the balance right. And I, I think that the fight, I, I don't know if you guys agree or not, but I, I think that the fight scene between the two of them is, is just as good as anything Tom Cruise is involved in or or anybody else in the movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I thought that that fight was awesome. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, you know, the fact that it's such a, a personal fight, you yeah. know, in terms of the characters, you know, I, and that's one of the things, I mean, I totally disagree with you guys about Paula Patton. I thought she was awesome in this movie. And, you know, Leah Sedu as well. You know, I mean, Sedu obviously has a lot of range. I mean, you look at this compared to, like, Blue is the Warmest Color, and it's a completely different type of performance. This is, you know, this or, or you know, what uh, people would probably be more familiar with at this point. You know, Spectre, she was, she was in, mm -hmm. you know, just a few months ago. And, 
you know, you look at that compared to like blue is the warmest color and it's just like, wow, you know, that it's like a completely different type of performance, you know, it's, it's like one is like so naturalistic and almost like improvisational. And then the other one is this like finely choreographed, you know, action movie thing, you know, and it's, I'm extremely impressed by both of those things because it seems like it's two completely different disciplines, but she's very good, uh, at both. Um, but Paula Patton, I thought in this movie, for one thing, I thought her character was, was really cool and interesting, but I, I thought that her performance was great. And that stuff like in, in the hotel with Leah Seydoux, I thought was awesome. You know, like, where like she, there's like this intensity where it's like, I want to mm-hmm. kill this woman so badly, but I'm not going to, because I know that I can't. But you know what? I might accidentally kick her out a window. And if that happens, you know, what are you going to do? And that scene (laughs) is so great because it is so fast and intense. And it's just this like quick moment where it's like spur of the moment sort of like thinking on the part of Paula Patton's character leads to her kicking someone out a window. And it's just like, well, uh. I well maybe well whatever what can you do <laughs> I thought that was great that's one of my favorite moments in the entire movie so so let's move on and talk about uh what this means as far as uh you know how it fits into Abrams's career as a producer and as a producer of of a sequel to a movie that he directed because this I think more than probably any other movie that we've looked at or are going to look at sort of clearly translates to what his role is on Star Trek Beyond, you know? Um, I don't know. I mean, what what, what do you guys think? Because I, I definitely have some thoughts as to, like, how it... Well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Adam? Uh, I think that the, the big thing about J.J.'s brand, as it's sort of been developing, the bad robot brand, if you will, is just this sort of sense of glossiness or just the machination of the film itself just feels real smooth and polished. And uh, I think he's definitely taken a cue from the sort of Amblin sensibility, if not necessarily in terms of the tone of the films he's producing, just in the sense that when you see the bad robot dude run across the screen or, you know, E.T. going up in the Amblin logo, you know, this is going to be a quality production. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you look at this compared to Morning Glory, which you guys just talked about, they have nothing in common in terms of tone or style or anything other than the fact that this is just a really slick looking and slickly produced film and i think that's probably what you can expect uh from uh, his involvement with beyond just making sure that that bad robot quality control stamp is there and is up to the stands of what he's already produced i i think hand in hand with that and uh is that i think that what we've definitely seen as a thread through all of the the productions uh up to this point and especially with this, is he's a producer that is going to make scale happen for his directors. Um, You know, like a producer, you know, traditionally like, yes, I'm going to make everything happen, but, you know, within reason. I mean, somebody at some point came to the producers of this film and said, we want to shoot an IMAX sequence that's insane with a high-budget star running down the side of the Burj Dubai. And the producer didn't say, you're nuts. We're going to do it with blue screen. We're going to do it. They said, Abrams said, okay, let's make it happen. 
We're going we're gonna to make that happen. You want that to happen, that's going to happen. And I think that sensibility it pairs with the, the desire for the production to look good and feel good and be something that will entertain people. I think that will translate into his role on Beyond. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. And I mean, just to kind of like, I guess, expand on, on what, what you guys are saying, I, I think that what what you see with J.J. Abrams and his, his productions and, you know, producing a sequel to one of his movies is that uh, he's not going to, to do it on the cheap, let's say. You know, like, th- there's definitely times uh, there have been a lot of movies. Oh, we, we Jurassic Park 3, for example. You know? Oh, yeah. Not, not, not to knock uh, Joe Johnston or anything like that, but, you know, that movie starts up and you're like, yeah, this is not directed by Steven Spielberg, you know, well, that's unfortunate. But with this, you know, it feels just as legitimate, you know, as Mission Impossible 3. It doesn't feel like sort of a cheap knockoff of what J.J. did. It's, you know, another Mission Impossible movie, this time directed by someone else. And, you know, I think that that's pretty awesome. But also sort of, uh, you know, on top of that, it's very much a J.J. Abrams production, it very much has the DNA of Mission Impossible 3 in it. You know, a lot of the people who worked on it behind the scenes, like Michael Giacchino and 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 uh, stuff like that, are, are back. And you can definitely tell that it feels like it's in the same continuity as Mission Impossible 3, much more so than any of the other Mission Impossible movies. But at the same time, it's very much a Brad Bird movie. You know, he's not imposing his vision. He's not pulling a George Lucas and saying, like, you know, I'm pulling the strings. He's letting Brad Bird be Brad Bird and do all of his Brad Birdy things, you know? And and I think that that's, that's pretty great. It's uh, super interesting when, when you have a director, an established director, who's producing someone else's film where sometimes you'll hear the director in that position say like i just loved it he knew exactly or she knew exactly what i needed they've been there before and then on the other hand you know sometimes the line of creative control gets a little murky and i think the most infamous example of that would be uh, steven spielberg and toby hooper doing poltergeist where still to this day people are debating whether or not Spielberg actually directed or directed segments of that film and uh, I just think it's kind of an interesting uh, sort of sort of outgrowth of the late 70s auteur period where these guys have sort of developed enough cachet to produce a film on their name how involved creatively do they get yeah and this this is sort of like doubly complicated in that it is a sequel to a movie that he had directed you know so how much uh you know sort of possessiveness does he have towards that and how much is he you know leeway is he willing to give and i think what we see here is that he's going to let the director do whatever they need to do and he trusts them he hired them for a reason he's going to let them direct but also he's not going to just back away and not take you know an active role. I'm not saying that he's there every day or whatever, not saying that he's on set, but he's definitely overseeing the process and, and making sure that it does maintain a certain level of quality. He's not phoning it in as producer, you know, even if he's not doing the day-to-day stuff himself. 
So, I mean, looking at Star Trek Beyond, it's like we've got Justin Lin, who's, in my mind, a really good director, um, coming on with some high-quality writers, as we've seen over the past few weeks. And I'm really excited to see what Star Trek Beyond is, because I think that while it will feel like it's a part of the JJ-verse, I don't think it's going to feel like a JJ movie. And I think that that's pretty much the best way it can be. Agreed. Sure. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> so uh, before we, we wrap this up, I just wanted to talk about a few um, collaborators on this movie that also worked on Shrek. There's obviously a lot of them since it is a bad robot production and, um, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, first and foremost, Brian Burke, who's, you know, the guy who runs Bad Robot along with J.J. He's obviously involved, as he is in most of the movies that we're talking about. Uh, then there's Simon Pegg, who's obviously a holdover from Mission Impossible 3, and, you know, which led to Star Trek 09. And Simon Pegg's role on this movie is interesting. Simon Pegg's role on the next movie, Rogue Nation, is going to be really interesting. I kind of can't wait to talk about that and then there's michael giacchino which i always thought was sort of like this great sort of like happy coincidence where yes michael giacchino is jj abrams's guy but michael giacchino is also brad bird's guy from his time at pixar and here you know the two worlds are colliding two great tastes that taste great together <laughs> and michael giacchino getting to do music for mission impossible ghost protocol is kind of awesome and then just the one other guy who his uh, his contribution to Star Trek is minimal, but I, I I love the fact that he's back after having seen him do Paul Bearer, and that's Robert Elswit, the cinematographer. Yes. I mean, okay, screw the Star Trek stuff. Whatever he worked on visual effects, that's how he you know kind of got his start in the industry, but. We talked a, b a bit about his work on the pallbearer, maybe mm -hmm. not the most stellar stuff, but in between the pallbearer and this, he made uh, Boogie Nights and um, Magnolia and There Will Be Blood. He won an Oscar for and those uh, are some pretty good movies too. All 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 that other stuff, and here he is doing Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. So now, Adam, I know that you are an encyclopedia when it comes to cinematographers. What do you think about Robert Ellswood in general and his work on this movie in particular? I love Robert Ellswood so much. Um, you know, we're both huge Paul Thomas Anderson fans and, you know, you can't have one without the other aside from the master, which is great, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I, you know, this movie is interesting. I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't necessarily love his work here because it doesn't necessarily feel like Robert Ellswit cinematography. It just feels like Mission Impossible cinematography, I suppose. But I feel like he's sort of the the, the genesis of this style of his uh, can be traced to one of my favorite movies of recent years, which is Michael Clayton in 2007, which is so, so good. And I think that was the sort of flashpoint of Ellswit's sort of clinical, steely, cold, corporate, antiseptic vibe in terms of his sheen and his style of photography. And I feel like he sort of grew that through Salt and then The Town and then this movie. And then right after this, he did 
the Bourne Legacy with Jeremy Renner, which I think is sort of, you know, again, just, you know, not particularly flashy, just that sort of steely cold vibe. So I kind of, you know, checked out on him for for a couple of years there. But then after that, he came in 2014 back to back. He did Nightcrawler and Inherent Vice. And I was just like, I love you again. But um, the two scenes that sort of stuck out to me in this film in terms of his photography were... And just in terms of lighting, I suppose, the when they're in the train car, when the team sort of reunites after the ghost protocols initiated, I just love that sort of cold blue kind of vibe that was coming off the LED lights in that in that scene. And then also when Tom Cruise disappears into the sandstorm when he's chasing uh, Michael Nykvist's character, who, again, is such a bland villain, I can't even remember the name, having just watched this movie a day ago. But... Um, I thought those two images were really the two striking ones that stuck out to me um, in terms of Ellswood. But uh, you also forgot Michael Kaplan, who did the costumes for this movie. Well. Oh, yeah. You know, and I saw his name in the credits, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's another guy. I totally forgot Michael Kaplan, who's yeah responsible for uh, the first two J.J. Uh, Verse movies, as well as uh, designing costumes for The Force Awakens and Blade Runner, right? I mean, yeah. Could, well, my favorite Michael Kaplan story, the one that really sort of cemented his name in my brain, I was listening to the commentary track for Fight Club, and Fincher is talking about how Michael Kaplan comes to him with the famous, now famous red leather jacket that Brad Pitt wears, and he's like, I think this is it. And Fincher just has like, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but he has this sort of like reaction to it. He's like, ugh, it's so tacky and stupid. Who would wear that? And he says, Tyler Durden would. He's like, wow, you're right. And now it's, I mean, it's iconic. So I think that was yeah. like, okay, I like this guy. I like Michael Kaplan. I got to keep an eye for his name. He's good with uh, leather jackets. I mean, uh, thinking about it, it's like yeah. you got Poe's jacket. You got uh, Kirk's jacket, jacket from the beginning of 09. Han's jacket. And yeah. and then Blade uh, Runner, Decker. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the ties and in Blade Runner are amazing. I, I, I still, I want to get one of those ties. <laughs> Mike, what do you think of Ellsworth's cinematography in this film? I, I thought it was really good. I mean, it, it, what you're saying, like the steely, cold sort of aesthetic, you know, that's, I think, what I've been looking for, what I've been trying to, because I can't really describe it, but I always think of it as being sort of like, like, yeah, like sort of like gunmetal blue or whatever you know gunmetal gray and and uh that that goes back to for me like to like tomorrow never dies and even hard eight and you know kind of continues through like a lot of his non-pta movies and really sort of like that to me feels like the Ellswit look and i see it here i see it in the born legacy michael clayton like you're saying and and uh you know all the way through I mean, the thing that, that I, I, when I think of Robert Ellswit, I think of like a, a million movies which are amazingly photographed, but I can't really think of one style because to me, what he does, which is very admirable, is he makes the movie look however the director wants it to look, you know? I know what a Paul Thomas Anderson movie looks like, and I know what a Brad Bird movie looks like or whatever, but I don't know what a Robert Ellswit movie looks like. And he shot all those movies. And I think that that's great, you know? I mean, he photographed the best movie ever made. So you know what? You know? There you go. 
There you go. Yeah. So <laughs> so good. So good. Oh my god, I love Boogie Nights. But um, I think I'm it's not interesting. Argue about I'm sorry, go ahead. The... No, I'm not going to argue about Boogie Nights being fantastic or in the conversation for one of the greatest movies ever I, made. I can't believe he made Paul Thomas Anderson made that movie when he was 26 years old. It's unbelievable. But um, yep. I, I think it's cool that you say you know what a Brad Bird movie looks like because something I was thinking about when I was watching it, and you know. I mentioned earlier how I think it's just all set pieces. It's like this movie is like set piece city for, for, for real. But um, it's it's interesting how certain movies you can watch as a big set piece and feel like, oh, this was pre-vised and this was brought to the director. And other movies, it's like, no, this was thought out thoroughly. And I feel like that's the advantage of Brad Bird's background as an animator. And you can really feel that in sequences like obviously the Burj Khalifa and that fantastic scene where they set up the projector in the hallway so that they can sneak down the Kremlin hallway and make it seem like the, the hallway is uninterrupted. So stuff like that feels very sort of visual and thought out in, in the way that an animator might do it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've talked a lot about, you know, the fact that each Mission Impossible movie up until now has had a different director and how each of them has had its own unique style and, and how much I love that. And when this movie was coming out, I was like, man, I wish he would do it animated. Wouldn't that be awesome if there was like an animated Mission Impossible movie? But no, but he does sort of like do that. I mean, one of the things that I, I always think about, which sort of like crystallized this for me, is you look at it and you think like, well, it really does feel like it's sort of part of the same uh series as Mission Impossible 3. And Mission Impossible 3 has a lot of handheld photography in it and stuff like that because that's what JJ likes to do, a lot of lens flares which are awesome. And <laughs> when I was buying tickets for this movie, I wanted to take my dad with me to see it on the IMAX screen and as we were approaching the release date, I started to get really nervous because I took my dad to see the truth about Charlie. Oh man. Well, and I mean, I, I like that movie fine, whatever, but that movie is, you know, sort of like an ode to, you know, Godard charade. and whatnot. Yeah. Well, charade, but also like the French new wave and almost the entire movie is handheld or the entire movie is handheld. And, my dad had to get up and leave halfway through the movie because he was getting motion sickness. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. Well, if this movie is all handheld and we're seeing it on the largest screen in the city, this might not be good, you know? <laughs> and and I actually went in and watched the trailer for Ghost Protocol specifically looking for that to see, like, what type of shots were used and what type of movement was used. And there's almost no handheld photography. It's all very extremely well choreographed like you were saying adam and and uh it's beautiful you know i mean not that not that jj's work is not it is but in a different way and i think that that's really kind of cool and yeah that's that's yeah. all all has to do with robert elswit and seeing robert elswit getting to use imax cameras pretty awesome even though i still have issues with the di on those things and whatever but we won't get into that because it's we'll do, we'll do it on our star trek cinematography podcast there you go there but you go. uh something interesting about just real quick that i kind of jotted down because i thought it was kind of cool that whole burge dubai thing um there's a great 
beautiful coffee table book that, that was published, you know, photographs of all the pre-production, the set photography. It's really, really nice. And it shows them how they sort of shot that whole thing and where the helicopters were and how it was sort of conceived. And I like that before they even went out there, they built a, a sort of exact recreation of a piece of the, of the, the exterior of the building inside uh, stage 18 of Paramount. And uh, for all my Niners out there, stage 18 is where the Defiant was. And, all right. uh, yeah, and if you're a big you weirdo like me and you love the TNG episode Masks, that's where the Temple of Masaka was. So uh, shout out to my boy Joe Minoski on that one. Love Masks. <laughs> I love Joe Minoski. Don't really love Masks. But, oh, uh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that book, I know the exact book that you're talking about because uh, I uh, Paramount sent a copy to to our, our theater and it was like, hey, man, thanks for, you know, a decade of projecting movies. Here's a book, and I'll be on your way. <laughs> That's nice. No, but I guess so. Yeah, it is a nice book, though. I like it. Um, so, yeah. All right. Um, any final thoughts on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol? Adam? I think that Tom, hair, Tom Cruise's hair is really good. <laughs> um, not too short, not too long. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, but it is pretty good. Um I think it's fun. You know, it's a fun movie, and um, I think it just ends kind of soft. I think that that conversation at the end goes on for like seven minutes, and it's just a little – it ends a little soft. But uh, as compared to the next movie you guys are going to be talking about, you know, that I think that ends on a much sharper note and just kind of a sharper movie in general. But uh, it's, it's it's a good time. You know, Brad, Brad Bird's really got that sort of – swing and vibe and i think that there's just these little jokes that i really enjoy that i didn't really remember like when the second tom cruise gets out of the kremlin he rips off his kgb uniform there's a born in the usa bruce springfield shirt on so i think he's got a good eye for that kind of thing and uh, i definitely enjoyed the film more than i thought i would upon revisiting it you know you mentioned tom cruise's hair and there is a whole you know even odd tom cruise hair thing going on with mission impossible <laughs> which people like to bring up where he's got short hair in the odd movies and long hair in the even movies so i don't know it looks like it's kind of falling apart with rogue nation but you know what can you do anyway john what about you any final thoughts rent it enjoy it love it it's a good movie and it's worth seeing very entertaining yes i i agree with that i i really do love uh go to call as i'm now going to call it from now on <laughs> and uh yeah i it, it's it's not my favorite mission impossible movie but it's definitely up there it's definitely top 2 so there you go um definitely check it out all right so adam uh where where can people find you on the internet and and whatnot uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, D-R-0-S-I-N. It's the number zero in the middle there. Uh, find me on the Babel Conference. And um, you can also find my work on the Redshirt Diaries, which I will encourage you to check out again, theredshirtdiaries.com. And uh, look for me at STLV. Let's hang out. Let's uh, do it up big for Vegas for the 50th. Uh, we, we definitely will do that. I can't wait. Well, well thank, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, it was fun talking to Adam about Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol today. But that's not the only thing we're talking about this week on Trek FM. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. 
Jordy is the one that's like, you know what? No, you're wrong. You're wrong about Data. I'm going to drop a challenge right here, and Data's totally going to step up to the plate, and you're going to get served, Plasky. And that's how LaForge created Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it turned out good, but, I mean, he had good intentions. The Orb. The Wadi, a fun-loving race from the Gamma Quadrant, arrive at DS9 eager to play a game with Cisco and the crew, one that appears to be a matter of life and death. All right, so are we moving along, Matthew? Oh, we're moving along. <laughs> Is there any redeeming value? The ready room. He's carrying in the lamb chop sock puppet <laughs> saying, she stayed at her post. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> to the journey! She has a holographic boyfriend that malfunctions. That can mean only one thing. She knows how he malfunctions. Well, I hear it's common in a lot of guys his age. Commentary, Trek stars. I haven't seen Mean Girls. You haven't seen Mean Girls. I oh know. My God. Everybody wants me to see oh Mean Girls. Oh, my God. Yeah, you have to see Mean Girls. I mean, after yeah. Josie and the Pussycats, though. Oh, how can I, I forget Josie and the Pussycats? The 602 Club. I actually like when they bring in the big container for the brain fish at the beginning. That's so weird. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, was really it opens mysterious. up and it's, you know, speaking through the... And all the minions that have the, to mop up after it at the end. Yes. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah, that was pretty no. funny. All the, it's like a slug trail. Um, you can actually see one of the guys while he's talking, kind of wandering around, mopping up. I was like, yeah. what is that guy doing? Literary Treks. You're totally right that when Atonement was done, I really did feel like um, everybody needed a break. Like a Kit Kat bar? There wouldn't be challenges and obstacles and things, but I wanted the the next sort of series of adventures that they faced for a while to be more infused with the sense of wonder that sort of underpins all of Trek. Women at Warp. You can always count on DC Fontana to Vulcan things up, and I, I for one, appreciate her for that. Get Vulcan with it. Na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> Get Vulcan with it. Meta Treks. Don't tell me you haven't wondered what it's like to be Patrick Stewart. Actually, I've wondered. I've, I've often wondered what it's like to be the Shat. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to know. It's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. <laughs> He's one of a kind. Melodic treks. But it's basically from a motivation of not treating the audience stupid. You know, treating them that they have dreams, they have imagination, they have hope, they have fear, they have all those things, and. The music plays on that. And introducing Saturday Morning Trek, a show about the animated series and all things Trek in the 1970s. Like six episodes counts as a season. This isn't the British, okay? This isn't this is two seasons of Sherlock. Come on. This isn't Sherlock. Yes, they've been waiting for several years to see more Star Trek, which is like Sherlock. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But From There to Here is also a good podcast you should listen to. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. We've got new shows for you every day, and you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, the Windows Phone directory, or you can download them or stream them directly from the website. Uh, So, yeah, go to any of those places, including Trek.fm, and uh, check them out. 
if you're going to iTunes or, you know, any of the places, you know, feel free to leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, and that helps us uh, promote the show through various algorithms or whatnot and get other people to uh, get their ears on the show and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, leave us a review on, on iTunes, and we'll read it on the air. In funny character voices. Yeah, you can even, like, make requests. That's we won't right. necessarily be able to fulfill those requests, <laughs> but you can make the requests. We will do our level best. Yeah. And uh, if you want to find us elsewhere on the Internet, you can go to the Babel Conference on Facebook and uh, discuss... Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, or any of our other shows, or anything that's not related to Star Trek, because there's lots of discussions going on over there. Uh, so be sure to type in the Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook, and it'll come right up, and then you can request to be added to the group, and then we'll add you to the group, and you'll be good to go. And you can also find the network on Facebook at... Uh, um, trek.fm or you can find the network on twitter at trek.fm if you want to contact us you can send us an email at comtrackstars at gmail.com or you can tweet us at comtrackstars john where can people find you on the internet well you can find me as kessel junkie on twitter uh, and you can find me on uh, the podcast Words with Nerds with my buddy Craig. And you can also find me on a podcast, uh, a Star Wars-focused podcast called Aggressive Negotiations that uh, Trek FM's own Matthew Rushing co-hosts with me. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you'll find me. It's like Wars FM. Yeah. <laughs> or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can find me uh, right here on the network producing From There to Here, which uh, features all of our hosts talking about all 729 episodes of Star Trek over the course of the year. Or you can find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing Commentary Track Stars. Uh, right now we're doing live uh post-game episodes of the X-Files, talking about all the X-Files goodness, so be sure to check those out. Um, They're available for download uh, the following week. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much it for now. Hmm. So, if you want to support us, uh, you can buy some stuff. If you go to uh, Trek.fm, there's a link to the Trek.fm store where you can find a bunch of red bubble items like t-shirts and pillows and... uh, stickers and all sorts of cool stuff high quality too like really good stuff i mean seriously i I think that each of us has in turn uh sampled some of this merchandise ordered it and uh i've been really pleased i'm wearing some of it now my trek fm hoodie is my go-to hoodie i have noticed that it is your go-to and that is because it's so comfortable it is extremely comfortable to be honest you know i mean there's some hoodies that I have which are maybe a little too thin or, or uh, you know, the zipper doesn't work quite right or that there's, like, a weird, like, band at the bottom. But, like, if you want just, like, a hoodie where you're, like, it's Chicago, it's freaking cold, and I don't have any heat in my apartment for some damn reason, then <laughs> the Trek FM hoodie is the way to go for sure. Yes. Yeah. Another way you can uh, help us out is by going to patreon.com slash trek.fm and becoming a patron of the network. This is like 
Kickstarter on a monthly basis. You know, you can uh, support the network uh, any amount you want. You know, we would appreciate it. And uh, various uh, levels come with various perks, everything from, you know, early downloads of some of our shows to uh, wallpapers and stuff to uh, getting to podcast yourself on things like uh, the the patrons round table mm -hmm. so yeah go to patreon.com slash trek fm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trek fm and uh, help us out all right uh one final way that you can help us out is by uh supporting our sponsor which is audible.com audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never had the time for John, do you have a book for us this week? Do I ever. In the vein of the Mission Impossible movies, the Impossible Missions Force, if you enjoy that type of thing, uh, why don't you get an audible book about Delta Force, a memoir by the founder of the U.S. military's most secretive special operations unit. It was written by Charlie Beckwith with Donald Knox, and it's narrated by Alan Sklar. Wanted volunteers for Project Delta. We'll guarantee you a medal a body bag, or both. With this call to arms, Charlie Beckwith revolutionized American armed combat. Beckwith's acclaimed memoir tells the story of Delta Force as only its maverick creator could tell it. From the bloody baptism of Vietnam to the top-secret training grounds of North Carolina to political battles in the upper levels of the Pentagon itself. This is the heart-pounding, first-person insider's view of the missions that made Delta Force legendary. That's pretty cool. While I was watching Ghost Protocol and I saw, you know, um, Tom Cruise running around and everything like that, at one point I was like, I wonder what the real world equivalent of, of Ethan Hunt's character Delta is. Delta Force is pretty close. That's pretty cool. If not actually the thing that probably Impossible Missions Force would have been in the vein of, um, probably, probably IMF, probably, uh, as a concept, might have predated, but I mean, it still would have been Spec Ops. But yeah, I mean, Delta Force, terrible Chuck Norris movie, but uh, <laughs> really, really interesting military uh, operations. I'll have to check that out for sure. And uh, you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. You can get any book you want with a free trial to audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And uh, we thank you for supporting Audible and the network. All right. Well, that's one Mission Impossible movie down and one to go and one more J.J. Abrams production to go. So we will be back next week to talk about the next film in the Mission Impossible series, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Thank you.